And then like when you get these boom markets, like in 2021, you know, being like in a dev firm, you start hearing all these pitches like Facebook for dogs or like people like <laughs> drinking beer, like sending beer selfies to their friends, like, oh, it needs to be an app. And <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that too, I think brings up the other point of how important it is to validate the idea before building it. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the Cashflow Pod. Uh, really interested to dive into your business. You started Eva in college, uh, originally booking bands literally in Nashville, uh, which sounds super awesome. I'd love to go to some of your shows, but uh, yeah. you know, you've evolved it all these years. Now it's a corporate booking platform to using technology to match entertainers with businesses that are looking to entertain their employees or host events or whatever. Uh, I'd love to learn more about that and like what that transition from, you know, like hanging out at the bar with friends and booking bands to like corporate entertainment platform. How does that all come about? Yeah. So my co-founder Channing and I went to Belmont in Nashville, which is a pretty small music school. A lot of musicians and songwriters attend that school. And so we were just surrounded by really talented artists and musicians trying to get performance experience and just get started. And we really believed in them and they had definitely what it takes. And we've even seen some of them like really blow up since that time. Any bands but, I would know? Um, Lots of country folks like Devin Dawson was someone we booked early on in college. Nice. Ian I don't even know country and I've heard that name. <laughs> um, Nice. Yeah. Ian Munsick was like getting really big now too. He was like in our, in our year at, at college. Um, yeah. And, and so it's really cool to see kind of the growth of all these artists that we were literally booking for. Oh, actually the, my favorite who I didn't mention Jake Wesley Rogers is awesome. He, we booked him when he was like just getting started and now he's opening for Kesha this year. So oh wow, he's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but the problem in Nashville and lots of other music towns where there's tons of musicians is it's hard to make a lot of money performing live because there are so many musicians. And especially when they're just getting started, they're willing to play for free or really cheap. And it kind of drives the price down for musicians like a bar. If they know they can get Joe for 200 bucks for five hours, like why would they pay Sandy, a thousand dollars, you know, it's like, and they're all really good. That's the thing. Like everybody's super talented. So it's hard to make money for, in performing. Um, so we really just wanted to see those artists get paid for their time. And so what we started doing is just reaching out to bars and restaurants and small venues and getting their uh, kind of like slowest nights, Mondays and Tuesdays usually and just said, hey, can we can we bring the bands and we'll even promote it and get people to come, but you'll you know give us a cut kind of thing. Or if it is like a ticketed event at a park, we'll just ask the park if we can have an event there, sell tickets, give them the majority of that money and start to see those entertainers getting paid. That's so cool. You must have been like the like the fun person to hang out with in college. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. I mean everybody it was, it was a really cool time because in that school, like everyone was really motivated and ambitious to go and like start things and try things within music. Um, so I feel like a lot of people were kind of working on their own projects or businesses. It was like a really like collaborative kind of school. And it was, it was really fun for that reason. That's awesome. So, uh, so we got to like the point where you're booking bands or hosting all these events, uh, uh, you know, I saw on your LinkedIn, you started, uh, Eva, a year before you graduated college. So you had like overlap at that point. Uh, but like, at what point were you like, what, when was the flip? When was like this, the switch flipped to this is a business and we're going to like go make money doing this besides just like throwing parties on, you know, for our friends and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was probably, we got into an accelerator program in 2015 
in Nashville called Project Music. And it was the first music tech accelerator in the country. And um, we were thinking of technology we wanted to build alongside of like booking and promoting events um, and had not really been able to build it, didn't have any money or any experience building technology. So kind of always had this idea of how we wanted to incorporate technology and a piece of the accelerator was um some funding to like build your product so getting into that it was kind of like a really short MBA honestly like really we learned a lot about the music industry got different um connections to agencies and uh management companies of artists and really learned how it works and then um they really kind of prepped us to learn how to fundraise, how to build an MVP. And that's kind of where we got our feet wet and realizing, okay, like we have a business model now. We actually know what our pricing is going to look like. Like that was definitely a big shift to know that we can kind of keep doing this potentially full time when we graduate um, and ha- and make money doing it. That's so cool. There's like, there's two types of entrepreneurs that come on this podcast. Um uh, there's like, you know, like who most of my friends are, like who I am, like a tech nerd that's just like in search of a business problem to solve with tech. And then there's uh, the entrepreneurs who like understand a problem and then they just arrive at tech as being the best solution to attack the problem, but know yeah. nothing about tech. Whereas like, you know, me and my me. friends are like, know nothing about the business problem we're trying to solve half the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think like the partners in that. Yeah, like the real magic happens when you connect the two people together and like they have a good synergy and a bond going. But uh, what was it like? You know, I've I've I'm been a tech person my whole life. So what what's it like uh, coming into tech as a non-tech person trying to figure out how to use tech to solve a business problem? Man, we really learned everything the hard way, I will say. Um, working with developers, outsourcing overseas, in-house, like we used contractors we kind of worked with every different type of level of developer you can imagine at first because we didn't know anything about we didn't code and we didn't even know like how to vet developers or um even how to explain what it is that we wanted to build like I really wish I could restart honestly go back I'm sure we would have saved a lot of time and money knowing what we know now but you gotta learn to do part of the journey to get you make the mistakes but we, I would say, um, we now have an in-house tech team and I really have become kind of the product manager in knowing what to prioritize, getting user feedback, how long things are going to take to build. Um, so I've learned a lot from like, you know, when we first started and not knowing anything, but really what kind of helped us get there is of course, learning from our mistakes, but also surrounding ourselves with people mentors that we could really trust and just get them to um, literally even just say, recommend a good dev shop to us that we can trust that isn't going to, you know, waste a ton of money. And, and also like working with good product managers back then too. Cause I think the very first mistake we made was just explaining like the entire vision of the whole product years of what would have taken development time when like they don't know what to do with that you know they we needed to be way more clear way more precise like really get in the weeds which I now know but um you know we were painting this big picture of this product that we wanted that some things we still don't even have like seven years later um so I really needed to get a lot more granular that's kind of a tool that I now know when you're talking to to developers and people that are actually building the product yeah, and it's uh, so I think I told you I'm the CEO of a software dev uh, firm. Uh, we're like you know 70, 80, whatever people. Yeah. Um, awesome. The uh, the mistakes that I see made uh, when you know when a client has a a product they're looking to build is you know if they immediately go to like the offshore route, which a lot of people do through like Upwork. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of people have bad experiences with that, and they just jump to blaming it on the offshore team or the offshore person. Sure. which is often like, sometimes it could be the case. Maybe that person was incompetent, but often it's not the case. And what they're missing is product management and product ownership in the middle. Right. Uh, you can't Important. expect like, you know, if you go and you like hire, a, you know, someone that's like a worker that 
does like carpentry and say like build a house like they're like right. there's no architect who's going to tell them what to build they're just going to start right. nailing wood together exactly uh, you know if uh and then if people that go to straight to dev firms or agencies often when those projects fail what i've seen what's often missing is product ownership so the dev firm has product managers and you know they can prioritize backlog and they can you know, work with the engineering team and architect a good solution. So the software might not have a technical problem in it, but like the client, as you said, might just like shove the whole vision out and then, you know, just yeah. not really understand like how to test it and validate things in the market. And so you don't necessarily have a technology failure, but you have a product market fit failure because you didn't roll out the right things at the right time with the right validation on your hypotheses. Exactly. And there's so, especially in our industry, events and entertainment, there's so many nuances that just like even just a regular marketplace company, there are those weird things that not everyone's going to know unless you've had years of experience booking entertainment for private events. Not, most people don't. So those things too, I would often forget to explain and kind of um, I always find now that when we're bringing anybody else in, I, I do take the time to like really explain how the business works, how the industry works, why it's kind of like weird that we're automating this booking process and our customers, it's kind of new for them. Um, it's really important to like determine the longevity of like what the business will become as well. Yeah. And it's like, software is interesting. Like if people who don't, understand software that go into it for the first time oftentimes have like a few years of like hard knocks learning to figure it out because uh you know like a mature software platform could have tens hundreds of thousands or even millions of decisions that need to be made to complete that product right and like some are like minor and have like almost no bearing on the results and some that like seem like they could be small might have like very large impact on you know the future and you know the outcome of the product right and uh yeah it's just it's so it's like so complex uh you know maybe not as complex as like a brain surgeon's work might be but it's <laughs> it's a very complex uh job to do more complex than i think people think when you have an idea for an app for an example like uh you know, I think a lot of people just think like, oh, this is an app. I would use it. This is how I would use it. Boom, let's go and make it. And there are so many decisions, like you said. It's not just like there are thousands of pages, even every little action. You know, there's so much thought behind everything that it's really hard to think through when you're when you don't have that experience. Yeah, I see it all the time. And then like when you get these boom markets, like in 2021, you know, being like in a dev firm, you start hearing all these pitches like Facebook for dogs or like people <laughs> like drinking beer, like sending beer selfies to their friends, like, oh, it needs to be an app. And <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that too, I think brings up the other point of how important it is to validate the idea before building it. <laughs> You know, great segue into that. <laughs> that was like, well, that's like, those are my two like biggest mistakes of business is like not knowing nothing about tech before building a product and not taking the time to even vet who is your customer. Is it not just you and your five friends or people really going to pay money for this? So I feel like they do kind of go hand in hand. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that more. Like, especially the second one, I think we kind of touched on the tech uh, understanding one. Uh, which I actually don't think it's necessarily a mistake to not understand tech going into tech, because I think a lot of really good, successful entrepreneurs, uh, just to kind of put a bow and, uh, you know, put a bookend yeah. on that one. I think a lot of successful entrepreneurs that don't understand tech succeed because they know something about a very specific niche that tech people don't know about. So it hasn't been like stomped all over by, you know, everyone and their mom from Silicon Valley. Right. Totally. So, all right, back to the, uh, uh, validating, uh, I, I, uh, validating ideas. I'd love to hear your thought process on that. Yeah. So, I mean, what Channing and I did when we first started, I mean, our, even our very first business, well, it wasn't, even, it was not even a business at that point, like kind of what we were doing before the booking part of this, what is now Eva is our idea was a website that would recommend, events and concerts to you based on your music preferences so like mm. you, what now you might do in, in apps and websites like this exist now um 
but like maybe you'd plug in your Spotify and even Spotify has it like itself. Like, Hey, you listen to all these artists, their concerts are coming up. Wow. Um, you really pivoted yeah, to where you are today. Big time because we were, that was like our initial idea because that was something we wanted and we didn't, you know, think to ask anybody else if they would want it. We just built the, started building that website. We didn't really get that far. It was basically a homepage. Like that's, about as far as we ever got on that product. But to promote this website, we would put on events and in turn, like we're already putting on events to just help our friends get paid. Um, and then we would like that company, which was ours, would sponsor these events. I mean, it was just us doing all of it. So we would just put the name on it. But, um, you know, where we were actually making money is people were buying tickets to go to the events that we were promoting. No one was ever going to the website. And I don't think anyone even knew that that was like what we were going for is to build that kind of product. So we really pivoted and realized like the live aspect of music is where we should focus. It's so interesting how you got to where you are today. I'm sure there's a lot more twists and turns. Uh, one one quick thing on that. Are, are you familiar with the mom test? I don't think so. No. So it's a book uh, called The Mom Test. And basically it's for, it's a, it's like, a, it's like a, uh, I don't know if it's like the Bible for product managers, but it's like, you know, if there's like one of like 10 books that all product managers talk about, that's like maybe one of the 10. Okay. Uh, it's, it's basically like, just to summarize the mom test, it says that like subconsciously in the human psyche, like people don't want to like be disrespectful or let other people down. So if you're, if you frame your questioning around like a product strategy to potential customers around, like, would you buy my products? They're most likely going to like try to justify in their mind a way that they would say yes. So they don't disappoint you. Hmm. But if you, you know, it's like, if you go to your mom and say like, Hey mom, would you, uh, you know, if I record some music, would you buy my CD kind of thing? Like she's going to be like, right. yeah, of course I'm going to buy your CD. Like, you know, it's the same concept. So you want to frame things in a way like as if you're talking to your mom and like she's, you know, so that she wouldn't just automatically say yes, because it's you like figure out how to frame tests in a way that that human psychological principle doesn't kick in. Sure. And like one way I've seen it done, I was actually just talking to a startup yesterday about this is like building landing pages with fake checkouts and like literally seeing, or you could have a real checkout and just refund people. But like literally see if people spend dollars, like if they actually spend money, then that's like, that's the, that's pretty much the best way to validate if something's real, like getting yeses isn't, you know, if, if a getting a yes is like plus one point, then like getting a credit card and a checkout is like plus a hundred points. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. I love that. Yeah. And I think, uh, we've, I hadn't heard of that specifically, but we do something similar when we roll out new features or want to get feedback of how to improve our current platform. And we'll pretty much just either give somebody, like when we were first starting, like MVP, it's barely a functioning product. We would just watch people use it and see if they used it the way we hoped they did and thought that they should. Like literally um, standing over their shoulder or did you use like tech or something to watch it? At that point, we literally got like 10 people in a room and would just like filter them out every 20 minutes and <laughs> let them like it. said, hey, book an artist. Like that's all we would say and see if they could do it. Like do it. Th like the user experience was easy enough and um, made enough sense for them to go through that process. Um, and if it wasn't obvious, then, you know, we didn't build it right. Like we wanted to make it very clear that that's the direction we're wanting you to go. Um, I I I keep hearing this thread talking to you that like you say you say you're like not coming from a tech background, you're not a tech person, but like the way you approach product is like very much like a scrappy, get it done. We're gonna succeed. We're gonna push through it no matter what. And that I I love that trait in entrepreneurs. That's like such an awesome quality. I man, I thank you. I appreciate that. But I that part is just so fun like I find that the the most fun part of all of my work is in engaging with the product and seeing how other people use it and how often I make assumptions on how they're going to use it and I'm wrong like <laughs> being wrong it's still really fun to kind of see oh my gosh of course they're thinking of using it this way like sometimes it gets it's easy to get so in the weeds and like I know 
every possible way you could use this product. So of course I know how to use it correctly or how I've defined it as correctly, you know, but someone who's never known anything about our business and has never been on this page before is going to have a different experience. So I keep taking, I keep like distracting the story. Uh, you're like on the story arc of how you got to what no, you did today. There's all these like interesting nooks and crannies to explore in the story along the way. So I keep like taking us off, but uh, let's go back. So you're like standing over people's shoulders, like checking the, checking the user experience. So like, and then I think we left off that the website, the consumer uh, like concert matching or concert recommendation engine, no one used the website, but people were going to the shows. So essentially you're like, a show promoter at that point. Uh, yeah. How did you like, what was the next pivot from there? Yeah. And even some more context around like who our customer was at that point, it was our very first customer was like fraternity and sorority parties looking for bands. And so any kind of uh, students on campuses who are like putting on parties, cause that's what we did in our college. So we were like, I'm sure other people in the South are going to want to find really cool bands and DJs for their parties. Um, and we can make that process of finding and booking them really easy. Uh, so that was kind of like, once we were in this accelerator, had done tons of like put on our own events hundreds of times. Um, you know, some people can had kind of approached us and like friends of friends, or we would help do it for our friends on other college campuses. That's kind of what made us start to think like, oh, there's maybe a market like us of people who want to book entertainment for their events. Um, as well as I'm sure it could be easier because every time we're booking something with the artist, it's the same information that's being exchanged. So can that be automated? Like they always know need to know that the venue needs to know this information, the artist needs to know this information, what they're getting paid, when they need to show up, like how long they're playing. So can it be automated? Cause it's fairly consistent at that level. Um, so kind of like we were growing in the Southeast in on campuses alone, literally we would go to like University of Alabama and Channing and I would like knock on the door of, of a frat house and ask to talk to their social chair and see if they just wanted to book a band for their next party and did that like throughout our senior year um and then kind of had some people you know booking and that was like our very first customer base but you, you've kind of gotten out like from what i understand correct me if i'm wrong like eva's more like um, a very niche specific kind of like upwork where it's a two-sided marketplace and then you know the artists or the entertainers come on and like manage their profile and then the buyers come on and like submit either requests to you or they just go on and directly browse the directory and kind of like it's like a two, it's like a marketplace that connects the two like the buyer and the seller of the services is that yep, right exactly. yep that's okay. right they're the kind of based on how much the event planner knows about what they're looking for they can either find that specific entertainer request them only for their event and provide the details of like what the event is or more often than not, they just, they want to see what's available at what price. And so they'll build an event. This is a time, date, location, what kind of music or speakers or comedy I'm looking for. And we match it to entertainers that meet that criteria. And if they're available and want to play, they'll respond with a quote. Cool. Cool. And then do you have like, um, is it like, are you like the middleman that handles the transaction and like escrows the money or something? Or how does, uh, how does the transaction work? Yeah, pretty much. We're, we're like the automated middleman. Like they can, like they're fully interacting on the platform. Um, they can, they sign the contract, they pay online and they can, um, you know, find that entertainment and then it's fully booked through our platform. I love that though. I mean, that's how you get like maximum leverage in the business because you've gone from like a people intensive operations intensive business to like literally you're a tech platform now, which is yeah. the yeah. ultimate way to get leverage. Yeah, that's the goal. It's still, you know, it still does take some time for a lot of our, now that we've transitioned to corporate events, it does take some time to really gain their trust and get them to fully use the platform. Um, but the folks that we've got that have been like recurring customers for years, just get on there, do it. And they're rocking. Love it. Yeah, that's cool. 
Um, I mean, is it like pretty much uh, like corporate event planners of like large enterprise type businesses? Or do you kind of have like, you know, more like do you have like also some sort of like freelancer or small individual planner type people using it as well? Yeah, it depends. It's really more like what is their budget for entertainment? Like we've done 15 people events and 15,000 people events. Kind oh, of wow. So like big conferences, maybe booking a speaker or uh, maybe a sales retreat for a company or a company holiday party and they want a DJ. So like the, the kind of size and type of corporate event varies. Um, and the customer, we do have like, three, four different customer types, which can be, make it kind of hard to market sometimes, but um, it's either like an in-house planner if it's a really big company, or they would hire a event planning company to like put on their event. And those are kind of our best customers because they're constantly doing events and they can just use us for entertainment. Yeah. Like the two-sided marketplace businesses can be like pretty hard to, to scale them because you need to like manage demand on both sides at, equally at the same time, or try to keep it equal as best as possible. Exactly. Um, yes. What did you find? Like, what was harder? Was it getting the companies and the buyers or was it finding like the talent that's in demand enough to make, cause like the platform's only as good as the quality of the talent. And I guess the price per, you know, the price and the value that you get out of that talent. So yeah. uh, which was harder? In the beginning, since just, you know, starting with like 15 bands as our supply, it was hard to build that up fairly quickly for the demand we had. Um, but pretty quickly it switched to the demand side, the event planners. That's for sure the hardest now. Um, once we got somewhat of a base, like where we have enough entertainment options, um, then it's like, all right, we're shifting all of our focus to getting more demand, but we kind of have to start over in every city that we launch in. So we always start with the supply side, get a decent roster of entertainment before marketing or, um, you know, spending too much money, like trying to get that demand. Um, but yeah, now it's pretty consistently like the, the entertainment side, the, the demand side is harder. I think you um, you mentioned that you guys went like into a virtual model too during COVID uh, and pivoted into that. Like, did that last or was that just temporary for like the 2020, 2021 time period? And now it's like back to business as usual. I mean, for us, it's pretty much back to business as usual. We maybe did like three virtual events last year in 2022. We haven't done any this year. Um and I think a lot of companies started in COVID as like a virtual event platform. Um, Hopin is a huge virtual event company that raised like, they were valued billions of dollars during yeah, that Yeah, that one's, I, I would be like really stressed if I was the CEO of Hopin right now. Yeah, exactly. But at the time they were like gold because that's all you could do. And they, amongst many others, were really painting this picture that virtual is here to stay. People will want to keep doing virtual events, you know, because you don't have to travel. It is cheaper. Um, you can still kind of engage online. But I think it's, in my experience, it's been pretty clear that people are happy to go to conferences and like still want to travel and be in person. Um, I think it's changed a bit as far as maybe how often they do it or yeah. how much money they spend it's changed a bit, but I mean, like the biggest conferences are fully back, like just as big as they were. Yeah. I don't want to sit and I don't want to sit for eight hours on zoom doing a conference all day. That's just overkill. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm going to check out yeah. Hopin and see what their website says they're doing these days because they, they have to be pivoting. Like what's, I would agree. I haven't looked either, but I I'm curious. Cause that was like the, the one we would, you know, we would say, oh, well, this company, two investors at that time, we'd say, well, they're valued at how, like 7 billion or however much it was at that point. So we'd be like, yeah, we're in the same space. So, you know, we're cool too. Yeah, they're pivoting. Um, it says create community experiences with Hopin, a suite of audience engagement tools, in including StreamYard, or StreamYard, Session, Streamable, Project C. So it looks like they're kind of becoming like a, like a virtual community platform. Yeah, that makes sense. 
like integrating a bunch of existing stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is a huge pivot. Uh, and like pivoting, like the way you pivoted, smart, pivot early before you've raised, you know, at unicorn valuations and have, yeah. you know, 500 employees to try to like pivot with. But uh, pivoting at this, at this, sta this stage is very, uh, very, very challenging. Uh, not yeah. that I can say I have experience doing that, but uh, still yeah. a very uh, challenging endeavor to undertake. I know I don't envy them. I mean, it, it felt like it felt very hard for us to pivot to virtual. At, we we're four people at that time, and that felt tough. Um, so I cannot imagine like a legit unicorn-sized company, like you said. I mean, that's going to be tricky. But hey, good luck. I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. <laughs> so uh, we were chatting last time. Uh, you were saying one of the things you're really passionate about is like women entrepreneurs and, you know, uh, helping women uh get into entrepreneurship and we were chatting about that a little bit uh i'm like really curious to hear more about that because i think we only touched on it for uh like you know 30 minutes or so or maybe 15 minutes when we were talking uh and like you know i i've been doing this podcast for uh you know eight months nine months you're the second female guest i've had on it's like it's difficult to find you know good quality entrepreneurs that are women to be able to come on and talk about, you know, stuff that's interesting. I think, you know, it's just like yeah. a largely like entrepreneurship is largely male dominated. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, we were chatting a little bit about how, you know, just kind of, uh, like cultural and societal influences for like young girls kind of might be part of the impact, but I'm curious what else, uh, what else has, has come to your mind around that? Yeah, I think, I think it is changing. And I think, you know, the more and more young entrepreneurs I meet, I do think it's getting closer to be, I mean, I don't think it's that close to half and half, honestly, quite yet, but I'm seeing a lot more female entrepreneurs getting started than I think there were maybe say 10 years ago. Um, yeah, I think in general, women are probably just less risky and it's probably a good thing to be honest. I mean, most businesses fail. Most startups don't succeed. So they're probably kind of thinking it through before jumping into it. Like maybe I think men might be more willing to just take that chance and like figure it out later when they might want to create a whole plan and actually see that this thing might work. And if there are questions, you know, they might not jump right into it and launch the business without knowing what is this going to look like in three years from now? Like, how, when am I going to become profitable? Kind of answering those questions, which not a bad thing. You know, I, I don't think it's, um, I think it's good to think things through, obviously. And I think for us, my co-founder and I, both females, we, I feel like we kind of were had, had a more even playing field since we started in college. Um, we just didn't know anything. So like we, and we didn't have to pay ourselves for the first like two years of business since we were so young. Uh, so we were not thinking that far ahead, probably like a lot of men that might start in their thirties of business, you know, like who are kind of willing and confident to just take that risk. And I do think that's a good thing. Like not, not thinking too far ahead and just like, not over, like over analyzing. It's like the, the more like academically you approach it, the less, likely you're going to actually do it. I think, I think that's a true statement. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we, pl we change our plans still very regularly. Like <laughs> if I said, if I set out that, Hey, we want to have this feature launched in a year from now, say something really big, say it's an app, you know, something that isn't just a small thing. Um, I mean, that is, that has happened. We haven't launched it yet. Like it just, things just keep changing. Um, so it's hard to predict like what the business is going to look like, how our pricing is going to be, who our customers are going to be. It's hard to think that far ahead. A lot of times when you're just when gonna... there's going to be a pandemic. 
<laughs> yeah, right? Like <laughs> no one called that. So who's to say? Oh man. So that's interesting. You said the risk adverse thing. Um is that like biological or do you think that's societal or both or because uh, I've thought about it before, like I always come to the conclusion that uh, like what seems to resonate with me the most is that because I've talked to my wife about this, too. She's had uh, she like she's doing some entrepreneurial stuff now and she's, you know, had companies in the past and worked for companies and kind of seen both sides of it. And, uh, you know, she's talked about how like when women are young girls, like they're basically kind of like, I guess, subliminally or whatever, like we're all subliminally taught things by society, both boys and girls but uh like uh I, I think like the messages that women get subliminally versus the messages that like i guess the messages that young girls get subliminally versus the messages that young boys get subliminally might be what kind of like ripples out you know decades later into what might make the ingredients for an entrepreneur more likely to happen yeah maybe that uh, that could be it i also think you know women don't have the same kind of access to those resources when you're first getting started. Um, you know, certainly we all know it's it's a lot harder for females to raise investment. Like it just looks a lot different. Um, but Did you raise like, for Eva? We raised, yeah, we raised uh, 150K right after we graduated to kind of build the product. And we've raised little, little by little. We've raised almost about 2 million total. And then we're raising like a two and a half million dollar round now. I'm curious, did you raise from like professional investors or was it more like high net worth or angels or? Yeah, it's been a little bit of everybody at this point. The very first was a um, like angel fund that gave us that very first check. And then we've had individual angels, we've had VCs, um, strategic kind of investors so have worked with everybody since then um you don't have to call anybody out uh, unless you want to i always like a good controversy but uh i'm curious like did you experience that sort of like um uh i don't know if like what's the right word like prejudice or whatever or uh you know did you experience that like friction of like being a female trying to raise capital for a business Looking back, I can say, yes, I think in the moment it didn't feel like it. And I think even until maybe the past like two years, I really felt truly that I was viewed as equal and we had like the same opportunities because it, you know, it wasn't blatant. Like they were just like, oh, women, you know, like it wasn't so obvious to me, but now looking back and seeing other things that I've seen now, I can absolutely say it is different because it's really hard for me to form a relationship with an investor where we're like buddies, you know, I'm like, well, now that I've seen mm. friends who are males and they're investors, even like regardless of the age difference, even, cause a lot of times, you know, say there's like 30 year old male investor, 40, or I mean a uh, founder, excuse me, say a 50 year old male investor, like they can still get along and, go get dinner and go get drinks and kind of like hang out. And that's how they usually like bond and build that relationship to want to work together in that way. And it's just kind of like, it's different for women. You know, it's like, it's weird. Like if I'm, especially when we were way younger, when we were raising, when we were like 22, like I'm not going to go out to dinner with like a 50 year old man as like a 22 year old woman. And like, you know, it, we did and we would, and it would be like very professional, but like, we're not going to get to know each other on a like human level. Like it's going to be very much like a pitch and we're not going to like connect just because it's weird, you know? And like, um, we also just, we're always kind of thinking like, and some guys are creepy, honestly, like they would want to like b talk to us and like have go and like connect it over a meal or whatever it may be and then we find out like they were never going to invest they just like want to talk to a 22 year old girl you know it's kind of like there is that I wouldn't say the majority of people are that way there's definitely like bad intentions out there but it's more of just like 
my best friends, regardless of work, are not 60 year old men, you know, like we're not, that's like not going to be the, my friend that I hang out with on a Friday night as a young woman, whereas it was a man, like they can, and it is, and they can like call on each other for other stuff. And they can really kind of like bond and like get closer than I probably ever really could to where it's like, was where's kind of the line, you know? That is the, uh, I've never heard it explained like that. And that is like the clearest and like most resonating way I've ever heard it explains uh, like the experience. Like I can totally 100% understand and like not necessarily relate firsthand, but I can like understand what you're saying and like, like have empathy and like appreciate that situation because uh, yeah, like I have a lot of friends in business that are you know, uh, you know, most, most investors, like, you know, most executives, as we're talking about, you know, founders, entrepreneurs are mostly men. Uh, and a lot of them are older than us. Like a lot of them are in their forties and fifties, especially the investors that are, you know, able to dole out serious cash. Like they're going to be in their forties and fifties, most likely there's some younger firms, but, uh, so, but like, you know, I have a lot of friends that are men that are a lot older than me that are like people that are like, you know, people that have helped lift me up in my career, people that have helped create connections for me. And like, I do have that kind of like buddy relationship where we'll go out and grab a drink or like connect on, you know, kind of like a man to man bonding thing, which is a great thing. Like, I think man to man bonding is really important, and you know, for men uh, to have that. But, uh, but it totally makes sense why like there, there's like a narrative sometimes that like men are in power and they don't want to give up power to women. And there's like, there's like that narrative that I've never really been able to like relate with. I'm sure there's like elements of that that happen from like a, like a misogynistic or from like a, you know, what do you call it? A, like a malicious intent perspective. Like I'm sure there's some people out there that have that, but I don't think most people have that. And I think uh, it just so happens that, you know, most, most of these types of uh, investment organizations are powered by men and like naturally men will have the advantage being able right. to connect and relate to men than than women have and that's that's like yeah that's uh yeah it's like yeah you're changing my perspective a little bit right now <laughs> like you're you're offering a new setting a new light on a new way to like appreciate this situation for me yeah it's it's so interesting because i mean this is like a new revelation for me within the past year like i can think of that dinner where that light bulb kind of went off because it was it was an investor that channing and i my co-founder we were trying to get money from and also somebody that he currently was an a different company male founder that he was currently invested in and we were it was like a fairly kind of casual dinner um, you know, we weren't like hard pitching. We did have like a pitch earlier that day and we were um, in New York. So we were like in town spending time together to see if this was going to work. And I just like, just like in the way that they were talking to one another, the investor, potential investor and the current portfolio company of his. And he brought the guy because we were kind of in similar um, spaces. So he was like, oh, you guys should connect. You know, you might be able to work together. So that was why he was there. Um but I was like, that was the light bulb that went off when I just saw the way they, they were just talking about other stuff. They were like, their wives were friends and they were like, oh yeah, we both love this sports team. And like, we both like had experience in all of these industries years prior. And like, it was just, I like realized I was like, oh, I will never like be able to be that close with you. A, yes, there, there's a bit of an age difference. Like but it's just not natural, you know, like, and, and we have investors that, you know, who have been the most respectful, the best, like, I even think of a few, like some, I even kind of have like an uncle kind of relationship. Like we are really close, totally trust them. It's a great relationship. Um, but it took years and years to now get there. I mean, like our very, I'm thinking our very, very first investor, six, seven years ago, like now, since we've been kind of at this for so long, like we're now that close and I could like call and talk about stuff. Um, but I mean, like, we're not going to go on vacation together, you know, like <laughs> there's still that like path that we'll never cross that I think men probably could. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, totally shedding new light on it. And I, I really, you know, like you're coming at this from a very just like real perspective of like analyzing the situation for what it is. And I think like, you know, I, I I have this where if something's, you know, I think a lot of like just humans have this thing where like if if uh, something's like not going in your favor, like you write stories in your head about uh, like what could be happening, about like how somebody could be, you know, trying to, you know, have a transgression towards you or something or like you, you like like we create these stories. Like I, I create stories in my head sometimes. And in this case, like you're not creating a story in your head necessarily. It's it to me, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like you're really just like seeing the situation for what it is. Uh, yeah, uh, really interesting. Um, and it's you know, like I'm thinking as you're talking about it, like I'm thinking, uh, like obviously Elizabeth Holmes has been in the news a lot lately for the, you know, she, she I guess she just went off to to start her prison term, but uh, like she totally changed herself. Like you know, she totally like changed her voice and changed the way that she acted and behaved, and did all these things to like deal with what you're talking about. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of wild. I I do think women in those positions of like pitching and and looking for money or partnerships, whatever it may be when the majority of the time a man is across the table um we do just have to think a little bit more about things and like how we're going to be perceived whereas men probably don't have to take those extra steps yeah interesting um that was i i, I appreciate it uh mackenzie that's yeah. an awesome uh totally. a- awesome perspective you just gave me uh so the other thing we were talking about too, uh, I, I I don't know if I introduced you to this concept or uh, if it was just like a new way to think about it, but like the concept of like masculine and feminine energy and just sure. for like the listeners, I'll just like summarize it. So uh, it doesn't nest like, it's not one-to-one, like masculine doesn't mean man and feminine doesn't mean woman. Like we all have some percentage ratio of masculine and feminine in us. Some people might be actually 100% masculine or 100% feminine, but I think those extremes are extremely rare. Yeah. Uh, and like in, I'm in like this kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in like a, a group that's like focused on how to, uh, how to like do the best you can at being in a relationship and like bringing your best self into your relationship. And like, there's this concept in that, in that world where like every relationship, like a romantic relationship needs an equal amount of masculine and feminine, regardless of like, you know, you could have two 50, 50 people, or you could have a 75, 25 and a 25, 75 person, but it needs to like, the two forces need to balance themselves out for there not to be, you yeah. know, like a, like a, a, like a clashing going on. Uh, but uh, so that's like the, this concept of masculine and feminine, just to give some examples, like, you know, business is a very masculine thing. It's like, you know, it's uh, doing energy. It's like, kind of like warrior energy it's like a very you know masculine type energy uh yep. playing music that's a very feminine type of energy like you're flowing like you're feeling the emotions of the song that you're performing you're like getting into like you're moving your body and you're you're like moving your soul to move other people's bodies and other people's souls like that's a very uh feminine energy to be in i'm a, I'm a musician so i i you know i'm a singer i sing in a in a metal band nice. um uh, Two actually, I have an Alice in Chains tribute band and then a '80s metal that. band. Uh, but uh, like, I I can definitely feel like I can be working and I'm in CEO mode. I'm in like masculine go mode, and then like you know, if I have like a gig with my bands at the end of a day after I worked, I'll have to like take the time to transition out of that like go business mode into like getting in touch with you know, being able to connect with like the emotional side of myself to be able to perform well and to be able to get into the zone of being able to sing effectively, yeah. uh, to be able to get the crowd going and get the crowd yeah. excited about it. So, uh, but like, you know, we're talking about this whole like female entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, obviously it's like, it's totally, uh, it's, it's totally common for men to have feminine energy to some degree and for women to have masculine energy to some degree, but Yep. For whatever reason, whether it's biological, whether it's societal, uh, you know, women tend to lean a little bit more towards feminine energy and men tend to lean a little bit towards masculine energy. Sure. So I wonder, like I've talked to a lot of people about this, both men and women, and I wonder like how much that plays into uh, 
like that masculine, like business is 100% a masculine thing. So ma masculine energy environment. So I wonder like how much that plays into it as well. Yeah, I think it is. It is definitely, business is definitely a masculine thing. And I think, I mean, when I think about it, my co-founder and I definitely do have more of that masculine energy than feminine. And I think our partners kind of like her husband is a musician and my boyfriend, I think I could see those similarities where they have, they have feminine energy too, that kind of like we balance each other out in that way. Um, and, you know, I think if, honestly, like it's, it's really interesting to learn about this, like as a partner, like I would love to like really think about more of myself and my boyfriend, like how we actually are. Like I had a, um, I went to, we did a tarot card reading once and our, like the guy even said that he was like, Ooh, you, me have way more, you are like, have the masculine energy, Justin, you have more of the feminine energy going on here. Like he told us that. And I was like, yeah, I could see it. Um, so I do think you're right. And like, it does have to be a balance in a romantic partnership. Just real quick, I'll, I'll uh, throw out some books for like you or any of the listeners that want to check them out. Uh, some favorites for me, Alison Armstrong uh, has a few, she has like a lecture that is recorded on Audible and then she has a few books. Uh, yeah. Very much great content about this subject. And then another one is David Data uh, has a few, um, has a few books about it, mostly written for the, mostly written for men, but the, he does have, I think one or two books written for women and like you can, men or women can read either one. Uh, yeah. but David data, I think it's spelled D E D E I D A or something like that, or D the I or the E might be switched, but, uh, those are two great authors on this subject. Very cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting to think about, uh, you know, how you engage with other people too. Like, I think, I don't want to say all like it, you do, I think have to separate like a man from masculine energy and a woman from feminine energy. Like, I do think it's best to like not think of it as that way but I mean I think like a very masculine energy which I definitely have in this way is like not talking about your feelings and emotions or getting too emotional like pushing it away like not really letting yourself feel sad or mad or too much and just kind of moving on quickly I know I do that for sure and it's not a great thing I, I'm working on it and don't want to be that way but um I think naturally like things like that um, can kind of make up your kind of the levels of your masculine versus feminine energy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's totally true um, that uh, yeah, that, that's the masculine, that's the masculine energy that just like moves on, doesn't think about the hard emotions and just keeps going like the warrior side and like, you know, it, for a man to connect to his emotions you need to be like going into a feminine state, which like I've done both. Like I've, you know, I, I'd say, I'd say I definitely lean more towards masculine. Uh, and uh, you know, like my wife and I talk about this stuff, like what we're talking about, like her and I talk about this, like really uh, like deeply, like we'll have really like long and uh, you know, sometimes intellectual, sometimes emotional conversations about this kind of stuff. But uh like if she's working really hard and she, or if like something like throws her into a super hyper masculine state, it's like probably like, it's going to be hard for us to connect. Like we might be able to talk about some interesting conversations about like business things or, you know, like intellectual things, but there's mm -hmm. no way we're going to connect uh, because I don't go into like from, for a romantic perspective, I won't go into a feminine state. And then like, so it'll be like, there's no way we're going to connect. So like she, she will, she'll like have to go into her feminine state for us to connect emotionally and romantically. That makes a lot of or sense. Or intimately might be the better word, but uh, sorry, yeah. I, I cut you off. No, no, I can see, I can think of examples in my life where I've not been able to connect with someone probably because of that. Like I'm just like shutting it off or I'm not like willing to like go deep and open up because I'm just like not tuning into that side of the energy. Uh, so I can see it, ma it makes a lot of sense and and that you have to just be aware of that and that you can kind of go either one. This is, this is such a cool episode. I love how we're like 
skating you know between like Lots personal stuff. stuff and like you know psych psychological stuff and like tying or keep we keep tying it back to business this is so cool yeah oh it's uh, great so i don't want to like steer way too far off of you know your company and, and what you're doing so like is there anything else like what's in the future for you guys like is there um is there uh you know anything you guys are working on that's really interesting coming up uh with with eva yeah so we really want to keep growing. We want to launch in a lot more markets. So really planning what those launches look like. The next three cities we're going to launch in are Atlanta, New Orleans, and Charlotte, really trying to kind of round out the Southeast before going to either coast. Um, and the strategy behind that is changing a lot. I will say, I think before it was just like, get as much supply as possible get a couple customers and we're launched, like go, just make it happen. And we're skipping a lot of steps. So now we're being a little more methodical about what that actually looks like, what relationships we're going to need to make in those cities, um, what order of things need to be done instead of just trying to do them all at once. And so we're taking our time and uh, trying to go about even the marketing and press side a little bit better as well. I think um, we've kind of just like bulldozed our way into the cities we're in now and just said, Hey, we're launched. And, you know, we did, uh, go probably too fast, honestly. So I want to do that a little bit better this year. And, um, so growth is always a thing. And then, you know, I'm always excited about the technology, what's growing there. Um, we do want to develop like, uh, an API where other companies that, have the same customers as us say maybe hotels or um like different types of vendors for corporate events um they can also give their customers access to book entertainment through their website so you know maybe we'll make say we made a partnership with marriott and they host plenty of corporate events and host people traveling for business maybe some of their customers would want to um, book entertainment for those conferences and those events, like through their, you know, they get a discount or through their platform that they already have. So we're thinking about different types of partnerships like that, that we can make, um, to hopefully access a lot more people. Um, and yeah, it's like a, it's an advantage too. like having, you know, you can't just roll out your platform to the whole country and run Google ads. Like you have to Right. You have to really like strategically go into new markets and like, you know, that's a, that's a moat, I think like that's a, but you know, by the time you do saturate right. you know, all the major cities and you're, you know, on both coasts and you've got, you know, the, the majority of the population within your market uh, or in, inside your, your market areas, you'll be uh, pretty well uh, like, you'll have a good moat to be able to make it hard for other people to come in and, and take up those, those markets. Uh Yep. It's almost kind of like the Facebook strategy, how they initially, you know, they did it yeah. at universities, yeah. but similar kind of growth uh, strategy there. Yes, I would agree. Um, and, you know, it's, it's definitely not easy when we also have like the service aspect. like it is an, we're automating a process, but the delivery of what you're getting is a service. Like, so a human is going to show up and perform for you. So you're right, like that we couldn't just roll out and do Google ads and like we actually have to have the supply in every market that we're in too. So um, lots of extra kind of layers with our business. Are there adjacent markets you can go into with your product? Like, is there like uh, when you tap out, you know, all the major cities, is there like a new switch you can flip to like go into something else or uh, expand the, the TAM, expand the total addressable market? Yeah, I think it's going to be, there's two paths right now and we have to pick one probably pretty soon. We're just still figuring out what is the best route. It's either we stick in corporate events and we can give, we can automate everything for a corporate event, the travel, the hotel, the catering, all the things that you would need to book for corporate events. Like we can automate that and have everything in one place. That's option one. Or option two, we stick in entertainment and we go outside of just corporate so we can automate the booking of festivals and regular tours and concerts or um, book signings of authors, like all kinds of things where an entertainer or performer speaker 
any type of con influencers too, like any type of person that makes content um, is booking themselves or their agent is doing it on their behalf can use our technology. That would be option two. Nice. Uh, what, what do you think about people that want to do uh, ticketing on, on blockchain? I mean, keep trying. I would love if there were other options. Like I'm definitely not touching that, but uh, like, I do think ticketing needs to be disrupted as it is today. Yeah. You've got like uh, what Ticketmaster and Live Nation are like the two big dogs. Uh, right. And of course, I mean, they're not incentivized to change. Like why would they, you know, it's, they're making all the money they can charge whatever they want. Yeah. So, when you buy a ticket, like I, you know, I buy concert tickets and I, the ticket's like $50 and it, it's like $90, you know, by the time I get done with fees and all that stuff, like, where does, I, I, does it really cost that much to operate that business? And do you have to like charge a markup that high to makes no sense to me. It's crazy. I'm sure they don't need to make that much, but they can. So, um, you know, or they're I mean, just super inefficient. Like some companies just like, because they can, make that much they just like find a way to you know be be inefficient and just have a lot of people and they probably could do the same thing totally. for with like half or a quarter of the amount of resources i don't know so you know, true <laughs> so true i mean so many businesses even like what we were talking about with Hopin, like because they raise the money because they have the money they have the staff it's like i'm all about being lean and profitable if if you can do it better yeah that's awesome uh, well, that's, that's a good, I think we're at a good wrapping point. Uh, Mackenzie, we went through like so many different <laughs> twists and turns, just like your business did to get to where it is today. Right. We, we did that here in this podcast episode. Uh, anything you want to close on before we hop out? Man, I mean, thank you so much for having me. Um, happy to chat with anybody who would be interested in talking or uh, if you ever need entertainment for your events, you can visit bookwitheva.com. Um, and you can find me on Instagram. Ken Stokel is my name. So those are probably my two plugs. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Did you clear your cash flow?